Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Snowy. This is Series 2, Episode 54. I interview author Paul Greenberg, author of American Catch and Four Fish. Been reading over his books and thought this guy would make an awesome interview about the travels he's done to write these books and inspiration and his fishing. However, as I'm reading through American Catch, there's a whole section about the Pebble Mine. And at the time the book was written, Pebble Mine was going to get terminated. And now with the new presidential lack of environmental regulations, it may be coming back. So sit back. This is a short podcast. Paul didn't have a whole lot of time, so we try to get as much talking done as quickly as possible. Hopefully, with his busy schedule, I can get Paul on again. Maybe when he comes back next time to Washington, D.C. If you want to buy his books, it's paulgreenberg.org, P-A-U-L-G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G.org. It's available in several languages. You can also buy them on Amazon, iTunes, Barnes & Noble, etc. So enjoy this one. And um, yeah, no pebble mine. And I'm looking forward to hearing about uh, the next book that Paul is writing which we get a little sneak preview of. So the reason I wanted to interview you, um, I, I picked up Four Fish and read that, and it's awesome. In fact, I bought it so I could doggy ear it. And, um, you know, these are all things that I, I end up talking about with my clients. People always, what do you talk about when you're on the water? I talk a lot right. about conservation. And then yep. um, I picked up American Catch yep. about a week ago at the library 
And the third part is all about the pebble mine, undermined about the salmon. And I thought, you know, great, we're, we're done with the pebble mine. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but not anymore. So I wanted to bring you on to tell the listeners, um, you know, you've been there, you've testified on the hill. Can yeah. you sort of go over? I mean, of course, I want everybody to pick up and buy the book. Um, but can you talk about why this is a, such an important uh, news topic again? Okay. Um, yeah. Do you want me to start right in, or yeah, you know, or- go for it. I'll just sit back. You know, I've got questions, but I'll let you do uh, let you do your thing. Well, you know, Pebble um, is like a giant metaphor for the fight between fisheries and industry, and that fight has been going on for ever since Americans or ever since Europeans hit the shores here. I was actually just writing a piece uh, about dam construction in the uh, on the East Coast. And, you know, there are 4,000 dams in my home state of Connecticut, and we eradicated wild salmon throughout New England. And uh, then we went and started eradicating salmon throughout the West Coast, so California, Oregon, Washington. I mean, there are still salmon in those states, but most of them are supported um, through stock supplementation and they're basically on human life support. So really the only last place we've got where we've got really truly healthy runs of wild salmon is Alaska. And when I say healthy, I mean actually commercially viable, commercially valuable runs of salmon. Um, I often think about what the conservationist and fisherman Carl Safina said. He said that we shouldn't have an endangered species act. We should have an abundant species act. So let's not just eliminate stuff down to we're saving the last three or four animals. Let's think about how we can create ecosystems or conserve ecosystems where abundance is the norm. So that's what we're talking about with, with Pebble Mine and with um, the Bristol Bay Watershed. This is the largest sockeye salmon run in the world. Um, something like as many as 60 million fish can be uh, in the system at any one time. Um, it's incredibly valuable from a commercial point of view. I think um, it generates tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars if you uh, amplify out what the multiplier effect is to both sportsmen and commercial fishermen and all their ancillary uh, support industries. Um, and the Pebble Mine itself um, is located um, uh, in the headwaters of some of the best salmon rivers that feed into Bristol Bay. Um in particular, if I remember correctly, because it's been a little while since I looked at the topic, but um, there are two main watersheds in the Bristol Bay area, the Quijack and the Nishigak. And um, if Pebble Mine were to go ahead, it sits at the headwaters of both of those rivers. Um, and so if there were a major failing of the tailings dam that they'd need to put in to make that dam possible, it could potentially affect both the Nishigak and the Quijack watershed. So it's a huge, huge deal. Is that... More or less what you want me to yeah, do? Yeah. Um, I wonder if I should have had the, the number. So, like, the, you just mentioned the tailings of it. From yeah. what I remember, it's going to be 1,000 feet wide, 1,000 feet high, and I don't remember how long it, the tailings would be. Tailings, for those who are, are listening, it's like the, the refuse, the leftovers. They take yeah. out the good stuff. They leave the bad. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's important to note that – so the primary object, uh, the metals um, – that they're trying to get out of um, Pebble Mine are copper and gold. And it's a very, very diffuse mine. It's what's called a sulfate mine. So as I think it was Rick Halford, who is um, 
at one point, I think the uh, speaker of the Senate, the state Senate in Alaska said, um, if you were to describe this by what kind of mine, what kind of stuff is actually in it, you would call it a sulfur mine and not a copper or gold mine. What that means is that, you know, if you were to comb through all of those, I think it's a 10 billion ton, if I'm correct. Um, you might want to fact check me on that one, but I, again, I haven't been into there, into, into the, I haven't reported there in a while. Um, but certainly all fact checked in American Catch. Um, but if I recall correctly, it's a 10 billion ton um, mine from which um, I think two or three billion tons would be actual ore, and the rest of it would be tailings. And uh, I don't remember the heights of the dam, but they would be earthen dams, and you would have to have a retaining lake that I think was 2,000 feet deep as the proposal went. Um, and it's a highly um, active seismic area. So you're putting all of these tailings that are, you know, have a great deal of sulfur in them, um, putting them behind earthen dams in an earthquake area. So, and, and then, you know, when the Environmental Protection Agency was looking into this, their ruling was that if they were to go ahead with permitting, um, then the Pebble Partnership, at the time it was Anglo-American and I think Northern Dynasty, two major mining companies, if, if, if they'd gone ahead with the permitting, then um, they would... Uh, the partnership would have to guarantee uh, mitigation of tailings wastes in perpetuity. So, in other words, forever. So, right. You said it would require like 24-hour supervision for, I mean, like thousands of years. Well, 24 hours, I mean, they don't really, as I recall, they didn't really stipulate what kind of supervision. Right. Um, because who's to say, you know, you need somebody staring at the dam 24-7. What they did is they, but they did use the term in perpetuity. Um, so you know, it's like I don't, you know, what's the oldest company on earth, right? Can they, I mean, maybe a thousand years if you like trace back the Dutch East India Company or something, or some old brewing company. So a thousand years, hmm. Uh, you know, do we really think ten thousand years from now there's going to be a responsible legal entity? Uh, to the Pebble Partnership that's going to be able to deal with the mine failure if it happens? I don't think so. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very concerning thing. And, you know, it's really just a metaphor also for a lot of things going on. I'm actually um, – I just finished um, a PBS Frontline special that's going to air in April, and we went back to Alaska, and, and in the specials there's a uh, – a graphic of all the salmon streams in Alaska, and then it fades to an overlay of all the mining claims in Alaska. And surprise, they pretty much overlap. And so, you know, if Pebble goes, there are so many outstanding claims in Alaska that you're really looking at an all-out conflict between salmon and mining if this goes forward. And salmon cannot live with sulfuric acid in the water. Yeah, well... It's difficult, right? Yeah. Um, I once I mean, made a cloud of sulfuric acid in chem lab in college and had to evacuate <laughs> the entire floor. Um, and that was just a couple of people. I mean, if that stuff you, – so you've been there. I mean, what does that amount of salmon look like to the um, naked eye? It's really amazing. I mean, you know, I have always been uh, – I've always gone around the 4th of July, which is um, – that's my birthday, and also um, the peak of the sockeye salmon commercial season. So um, when salmon come into the river, in the mouth of the river, they're, they're what are called sea bright. They're still silvery, and they haven't started to make that 
metamorphosis into a, into a, a, a spawning uh, fish. So they don't have that bright red color. They're just silvery, and they're still in the sort of murky delta area. So you don't you don't see that kind of amazing spawning uh, moment that you would see um, once they get further upstream. That said, um, I was out with commercial guys, and um, we got what's called being called corked. There were so many salmon in the net that the corks holding up the the set net were sinking, and um, we were coming up butting up against the end of the commercial opening and they, what they do, they're very, very good with salmon management in Alaska. They open up the rivers for a certain number of hours at a time to fishing and then they close it and they do that so that you're preserving um, the genetic diversity in the river because every pulse of salmon that comes into the river is slightly genetically different, might be heading towards a different um, rivulet that leads, you know, the, a, a different, um, a different part of the river. So anyway, when they close the opening when they close the the the, the daily fishing, um, you have to have make sure all your nets are out and all your fish are in the boat. And I remember we just got slammed by all these sockeye coming into the river, and we were just pulling like crazy to get all the fish in. And by the time we'd actually gotten the fish into the boat, it was a fairly large skiff, and we were up to our thighs in salmon. Um, so. You know, what's that look like? It looks like a lot of fish, and these are really high-value high fish. They're really delicious fish, and, um, you know, it's, it's really quite a sight to see. It's worth going. Now, that amount of fish currently with all of the farming and uh, harvest, would it have looked the same, you know, a thousand years ago, that many fish, or would it have just been, like, Well, you know, you're delving, acres. You're, you're delving into shifting baseline territory here. Um, but you know what you should do? Um, you know what? If you, I assume this is a podcast, so you go on, so this will be online. Uh-huh. Uh, the University of Washington has a, some beautiful, beautiful footage that I believe is public domain of spawning sockeye. Um, that's, you know, later into July, into August, and you can see it. But in any case, to your question, um, you know, the standard fisheries management practices apply in Alaska, you know, and, and when when people go fishing commercially in this country, they try to achieve what's called maximum sustainable yield and or MSY. And when you're doing maximum sustainable yield, the, the theory is that if you leave a certain percentage in the water, um, often the number I hear often is 40 percent of the of the of the historical biomass in the water, that 40 percent will replenish and bring you back to up to 100%, which you can then harvest again. So if they're doing their fisheries management right, they should have something similar to what was um, in Alaska right now. Um, that said, there is a lot of commercial fishing pressure. There are There's also um, subsistence angling pressure. Um, the one thing that Alaska really has going for it is there are hardly any dams. You know, if you, as I said before, Connecticut has 4,000 dams. Um, there really, um, is a lot of just good spawning, um, area still open up to salmon, which really isn't the case for most salmon country in the world. Um, and then also water quality is quite good. Salmon really need really high oxygen, pure, clean water. Um, there's logging in a lot of Southeast Alaska, um, but not so much further up, although there is logging that does occur, but it's just um, night and day compared to, say, Oregon, where I counted salmon in the coast range and hardly saw any fish in the 80s when I was doing there. What I did see was a lot of clear cuts and a lot of dams. 
So you've seen you see, you, you saw that in the eighties in Oregon. Yeah. So okay. in Oregon, when I was a kid or when I was in college, I took a year off and, and part of that time I was working for the student conservation association. Um, and on bureau land management land, um, I was counting, doing steelhead and salmon surveys. And I, I saw one fish the entire time. Wow. Was, That's, so, and that was then it's probably worse. Now. Well, you know, it's hard to say it goes up and down. I mean, I was not there during prime spawning time. And it might have been different had I been there, say, in the in, in, in the summer or the fall. But um, what was apparent then was just the way they were completely clear-cutting all the timber in Oregon. And it was really sad because, you know, all the loggers would get in a twist and say, oh, you know, we have to keep logging because it's our way of life, it's our jobs. But meanwhile, they were sending raw logs to Japan, um, and there were hardly any jobs aside from the cutting of the trees the mills were starting to shut down because the Japanese didn't want um, cut timber. They wanted to cut it themselves. And then there was this ridiculous spread that they put in where, okay, no, 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 you know, America first. Um, we that have sounds to familiar. Have, right. We have to have, you know, logs that are huge, you know, that are, that are cut in America. So they, they did this thing where they would cut one edge of the log off, just like one edge of the bark off, and that was considered milled in America. And then they'd export it to Japan. Oh, of course. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So it was just, you know, it was it, it was really brutal. And, you know, as um, as a volunteer with the Bureau of Land Management, which you might have seen recently, almost got dissolved um, last week. There was a bill introduced by, I think, Senator from uh from, from Utah, uh, where they were trying to basically dissolve the holdings of the Bureau of Land Management. I've been on bad terms with Orrin Hatch for nearly 20 years now, <laughs> um, lobbying in college against him. Yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, I don't know if it was – I don't think Hatch actually sponsored this particular piece of legislation. It might have actually started from the House. Okay. Um, if you if you Google around, you'll find it. But, you know, we almost lost all those lands. Fortunately, the hunters and the fishermen went to Zerko. And wrote tons of letters and stopped that bill from you know, getting anywhere near a floor. So that was great. And you know, I always think like the secret conservatives out there um, that are uh, poised to, I think, put up a major fight against this administration are all the hunters and the fishermen who, generally speaking, vote Republican. Um, you know, there are some. You know, I don't know about yourself, but you know, certainly meet the sort of conservation-minded hunter or fisherman out there who votes democratic but there are a lot of like especially in the west there are a lot of people's like basically hands off my gun i want to shoot my elk 
But you start privatizing public lands and cutting off access to fishing and hunting, um, you're going to see a really serious revolt. So as deja vu, now that this is you – they're know, putting the legislation that possibly opening up the mine again, are you yeah. going to come back down to D.C. and speak to Supreme Court, Congress, senators, have to just do it all over again? You know, if I'm called to talk about Pebble Mine, I certainly will come down and talk to the people down there. Um, I think um, I said in American Catch that fishermen are kind of like um, hidden moles, you know, in, in, in um, that you find them in odd places. And I remember when I came down um, and talked um, at the Supreme Court, um, that was a session that was held to just kind of popularize and bring to everybody's mind what an amazing place Bristol Bay is. The person who helped organize that was Sandra Day O'Connor. And, um, you know, she's, um, you know, a Republican appointee, you know, but she's a fisherman. And I think when she saw that this was something that was really truly might happen, um, she got active about it and um, helped, helped make that happen. So um, I, I think that, um, you know, somebody, I think it was Tim Bristol who was with Trout Unlimited and now has started this thing called Salmon State, but he's in Alaska. And he said, you know, the conservation business, um, all victories are temporary and all defeats are permanent. And that's unfortunately the case with all environmental things. We always have to refight these same fights. But, the, you know, the good thing is you're always, you know, it's not like you're defending some crook, you know, who busted out of jail and you have to go down to jail and defend him again. It's you're defending this most incredibly beautiful, miraculous thing. And, you know, it's a little bit like religion. I mean, you know, sinners, you know, people go to church, right? And they go to church again and again to go through the same problems. And if you believe in God and you believe in religion, you sometimes you achieve an enlightenment. You, you achieve this, this feeling of grace. And so for me to go down and defend Pebble, it's a feeling of grace and a, an opportunity to express that grace to people who might not have been touched by it yet. And I, I don't know if I'll ever get there, so I have to thank you for doing the work uh, well, you know, for, you should- for myself and with my daughter. I mean, it's been on my list to get up there for a long time. Well, if you want to go, I have a couple of people I could send you to and certainly get up there. But in the meantime, what I think you should do is you should try and get as many people – in the administration on your boat fishing and get them into a conversation, get you know, offer to take their kids out, whatever. I gave because, Trump Jr. my business card last week. Oh, weekend. yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, I'd love to come down and fish with you and, and talk about all these things. I was thinking, you know, this article came to my mind, you know, you could do instead of draining the swamp, it's fishing the swamp. Exactly. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Shadron down here? Um, you know, I've heard of it, and uh, but I've not seen it. And I know, um, are they primarily American shad or hickory shad or, or gizzard shad? What, what do you got down there? We have, well, the, the gizzard shad, which nobody wants. They're absolutely disgusting. Uh, right. But mostly hickories, we're, we're not getting down really deep enough from shore to get the Americans. Yeah. Um, if you're out on the boats, you, you'll get more Americans. But you can get a hickory shad almost on every cast. If wow, you're doing it right, you know, on a five weight, it's about as exhilarating as fly fishing gets. When is that, April? April to May. It's based oh, yeah. on river temperatures. And again, that's a fishery that early last century was decimated. There were, I think, 11 fish processing stations up and down the Potomac. Um, they just would go across the entire river 
with nets and just scoop out everything. Yeah. And now they're protected and they're coming back. Now you can't even take uh, river herring. There's a moratorium on those now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, same up here. Um, well, for now anyway, right? Um, well, yeah, I would love to come down and fish the shad. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the pet – so right now I'm working on a new book um, called The Omega Principle, and it's about omega-3 fatty acids. And uh, one of the things I've been sort of toying with in the book is the fact that once upon a time, this country was so rich in food that had high levels of omega-3s. I mean, you take your shad or your herring or whatever, um, but we basically – destroyed that and replaced it with food that's very high in omega-6, which if you follow your nutrition, things like corn and soy, things like that actually compete in the body for space on enzymes that can lead you down a path of, in, of inflammation if you're overly high in omega-6s. But if you have a right, the right balance and you have more omega-3s in your system, that can lead you down the path to resolution. So we've actually made ourselves sicker potentially by shifting away from this amazing once once amazing wild food source and and ruining our rivers and ruining those natural ecosystems that once fed us. Mm-hmm. When do you think that book will be out for us? <clears throat> that will be coming out in the summer of 2018. Tentatively, it's titled The Omega Principle, um, but um, I'm still I'm ju- I just I'm, I'm revising it now. But more um, more. In the more near-term, um, PBS Frontline will be airing um, a special that I'm hosting. Uh, it's going to be called The Fish on My Plate. And it's sort of um, a journey in and out of wild and farmed and everything in between. And we do go to Alaska on the, on the, on the, in the special. We go to lots of other places. So it's it's pretty fun fun little film, I think. Excellent. All right. Um Another question. So after reading the oyster chapter, yeah. Um, so I, I'm only only really been exposed to oysters down sort of Virginia area. I yeah. had some from Maine. Yeah. And that first slurp, I understood the marois <laughs> that you mentioned. I've never had a, a briny oyster like that before. Yeah, it's a and different experience. It if I hadn't read your book the week before, it would not have been such an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, we in, in land food we talk about terroir, right? You know, the wine and the and the beef and so forth, tasting of the land. And terroir is this concept I was first introduced to by a guy named John Rowley, who is an oyster aficionado. And the idea is that every oyster tastes like the bay it's from, and um, that's why it's so fun to eat oysters because you know, since there are more and more good oyster bars around, you can now order a dozen oysters where every oyster is from a different place. And it's just really, really fun to try and taste those differences. And you really can. I mean, one thing anyone can taste the difference is the difference between an East Coast oyster and a West Coast oyster. Have you have you tried any West Coast oysters before? I have, but I probably didn't pay that much attention to it. So next time you do, um, keep watermelony in your mind, and you'll realize that every West Coast oyster has a slightly watermelony taste that the East Coast don't have. Uh, and you're right, the southern oysters have a whole other taste entirely. I mean, they tend to be more brackishy, um, a little bigger. Some would call them flabby. Um, I actually happened to – I kind of broke myself in on oysters, on southern oysters. Um, I was first kind of exposed to oyster eating. Um, a year after the Gulf spill, uh, the oil spill, um, I started doing research in uh, Louisiana, 
And, um, you know, I was saying, I think I said in an early article about it that New Orleans is one of the only places that a freelance journalist can sidle up to a bar, eat a dozen oysters, and afford to be able to say when the bartender says another dozen, you can afford to say, you bet, because the oysters are so cheap down there. Um, and, and so I really got to like southern oysters, but they are bigger. Um, it's partially they're bigger because often because they're just the water is more fertile and full of stuff for them to eat. And um, I guess also southerners have gotten used to those those big wild oysters, and, and that's sort of what it's, what it's all about down there. The book I'm reading now discusses that they used to have oysters that were the size of dinner plates. Uh, those are all are you, long gone. Are you re- reading? Um, are you reading Mark Berlansky's book? No, so I've I have read Oyster. I've read Cod. Uh-huh. Um, I'm reading. I can't remember. It's got like a little butterfish. It's a British author. I don't really <laughs> eat. I don't eat seafood except for oysters and maybe some mussels. Uh, you throw everything back. Yeah, I just I was brought up with just weird eating habits. So I read <laughs> all about the stuff that I mean. I'm reading all about the salmon you write, but I'm not going to eat salmon. Um, <laughs> That's it's just funny. what interests me. Yeah. Well, I, you know, as a kid, I wasn't a huge fish eater, but um, as I started to fish more and become more conscientious about it, um, I realized that kind of eating it was part of the experience. And um, um, actually, for this latest book, for this Omega book, I put myself on an all-fish diet for an entire year um, to see what would happen. And I did my blood work and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was like a big experiment on my body. The opposite of supersize me. Exactly, fishicize me. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and then also reading about how the northern fish are slower and they're they don't move as much. They don't need the speed, so their muscle meat is whiter and flakier. And that brings me down to introduce snakeheads down here, which everyone loves to eat, and it's just white, soft, flaky meat. Yeah. I wonder if that's because they're just such a lazy fish. Could be. I mean, it's basically there's two there's two kind of muscles in fish. There's fast twitch and slow t- slow twitch muscles. And fast twitch muscles or red muscles, red muscle fiber, um, tends to be in fish that are um, real hard, steady swimmers, whereas slow twitch are for um, fish that tend to, you know, just hang about and just need to do the occasional jerking of their head around to kind of grab something. So it's possible. I've actually eaten snakehead down there in Washington, and you're right, it is quite tasty. Where did you eat it? You know, it was a friend of mine actually got some at a, at a fish market and brought it in. So I was surprised to see that people were actually selling it. But are that are you finding them just everywhere in the rivers down there? The bow hunters are decimating them a lot. Well, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't um, Bart Seaver's dinner that he did down here a couple years ago. You know, I I know Bart and Seaver. Yeah, um, tell I have, we're we're old friends. Oh, good. Yeah, I just talked to him actually the other day. <laughs> you tell him He's, the Snow White said hi. He'll be like, what? Oh, all right, good. Yeah, he's in um, he's in Maine now. Um, but the no, no, this wasn't Barton's dinner. This was just a friend of mine's um, found it in, in, in a fish market. And um, I was slightly kind of, you know, Snakehead is a terrible name if you're thinking about trying to market something. So somebody really ought to come up with a different name for them. Um, and the only other time actually I'd had Snakehead was where they're native uh, was uh, Vietnam, and. Uh, there's this dish that they make in Vietnam called kakato, uh, which is this sort of fish in a clay pot with a lot of sh- uh, brown sugar and, and black pepper. <laughs> and it's pretty good. Um, and, and the American version of it is to use kind of a nice white filet, but 
Vietnam being Vietnam, you know, people like to see the head on the fish. And so when you stick your spoon into it, it's like you, you know, and the spoon comes up, it's like watching alien, you know, come out of the murk. There's, it's a pretty ferocious looking face on that thing. Yeah. And, you know, to have that in your soup is a little bit off putting. So, um, that, that had been the previous time that I'd eaten it. So when my friend actually brought a nice white filet of it, I was kind of shocked. I've, I've eaten them once. <laughs> but I had nothing to refer it to because you don't eat fish. <laughs> yeah, I, it was lost on me. It's just like I used to work at a I was a cheesemonger and we had the Iberico ham. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're like taste a piece. And I'm like, you know, I wouldn't know the difference between this and like boar's head. Honestly, like don't don't waste something that good on me. <laughs> That's very funny. That's very good. Uh, um, hey, I should probably wrap this up. Okay. Yeah. So so uh, what can the listeners do? to help prevent this call write letters yeah i mean the issue at hand with pebble mine is that um the mine itself the claim is on state land which makes the federal uh involvement um complicated and what happened on the previous administration there is a clause within the um the uh, clean water act called the 404c which allows the federal government to get involved in uh, permitting when the site in question is a an area of national significance for shellfish beds or spawning areas. And so under the 404C clause, um, EPA had started an action under the Obama administration. Now, obviously, that could get stopped pretty cold. And um, I think, you know, uh, we need to be supporting the EPA in a really big way and to figure out how to um, keep its essential mission in place. Um, certainly, if you have a congressman um, that is engaged with these matters, or even if you don't, I think it's important to, in general, stress your elected representatives that you want clean, healthy water that you don't want the Clean Water Act in any way diminished under this administration, um, and that you see this as an essential obligation of um, government to keep our water clean and our air clean. So I think that message can be directed. You know, you can mention the pebble mine, but, you know, this is the kind of thing is happening all over the United States, potentially. Um, you know, this, the recent um, lifting of um, an Obama-era order, that prevented dumping of um, coal mining tailings into streams. Uh, that was just, I think, rescinded by right. the, yeah, the House and the Senate. Lovely. So, I mean, you know, that's just part. It's 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 all a piece. It's all connected. And you start unraveling this thing, whether you start unraveling in Alaska or West Virginia, eventually it's all it's all gonna you know trickle down, so to speak. And pretty soon your water's going to be dirty too. So it really should be a line past which we should not cross. And, you know, we really need to keep our water clean and fish full. And um, it will be good for our fish and it will be good for ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, where can we purchase your books online? Um, you can go to my website, paulgreenberg.org. That's P-A-U-L-G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G.org. Um, and that'll take you to there. There are links directly to Amazon. But you can just go to Amazon. Both Four Fish and American Catch are available in paperback. They're also available in um, audiobook format. Um, I'm told um, I can't bear to listen to them being read out loud because it makes me too, uh, I don't know, for whatever. But I'm told the narrator is very good, and um, people seem to like the audiobook. You can also get it on both of them 
uh, on Kindle and on Apple, um, on iTunes and so forth. So Fantastic. everywhere books are sold, as they say. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy person, so uh, much appreciate this. And next time you're in D.C., don't be a stranger. I will do. Keep on fishing, Rob, and get, get, get one of the Trumps out on your boat. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. And if you lack the strength of your own, honey, hold out your hands and take it from an old man. Freestone Media at freestone-media.com.